Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, on our last podcast, I began my final discussion, finally, of Joseph Conrad's incredibly deep novella, Heart of Darkness. Now, undoubtedly, the main subject of this classic piece of literature is about the horror of human nature. Now, it's my opinion that Marlowe's last discussions on Kurtz with his friends on the Nelly and with Kurtz intended are Conrad's personal instruction on the darkness bound in human hearts. Now, since this is my last program on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, I want to use Marlowe's discussions with Kurtz intended. Now, I will be focusing and staying in the last seven pages of Book 3, and in the Barnes & Noble edition, that's pages 117 to 124. And in the Bantam edition, it's at least the last 10 pages, 107 to 117. Now, I'm just going to open up with this, this quote. Um, again, now, uh, when we break into the, this story is uh, actually uh, Marlowe is off the, um, he's, he's out of Africa, he's off the continent, he's back actually in Europe. And uh, this is the middle of page 117. It says, No, they did not bury me, though there is a period of time which I remember mistily with a shuddering wonder, like a passage through some inconceivable world that had no hope in it and no desire. Now, that's a, that's a very interesting way to kind of open up this paragraph. But, but essentially, what Marlowe is telling us is that he was really dangerously sick. And we know that, that essentially Kurtz died because of uh, the illness he contracted in Africa. And Marlowe also contracted a serious illness. And we also know that when Conrad himself went to Africa, he came back sick. And so, so this is all, um, I think, very much in keeping of my feeling uh, that Marlowe is definitely Conrad. Conrad is speaking through the, uh, let's say, the voice and the face of Marlowe. So, so notice what he says there. He says that when he came back, he, he really was not, I mean, it's like he was in this dream world. He, he was uh, in this world where, uh, you know, there was, uh, it's, it's kind of like it was just a, I don't know, I guess he was mentally suspended in air or something. Uh, he said it was an inconceivable world. There was no hope. There was no desire. And then he goes on to say, he says, I found myself back in the sepulchral city, resenting the sight of people hurrying through the streets to filch a little money from each other, to devour their infamous cookery, to gulp their unwholesome beer, to dream their insignificant and silly dreams. And so, so essentially what he's telling us is that you know, his illness is affecting certainly or what he sees going on back in, in Belgium. And remember, that is the sepulchral city. But, but, but essentially, I think what, what Conrad is doing here is he's trying to, to get us to see that, that the heart of darkness wasn't just in Africa. 
you know, the, the, the savagery, all of that, you know, on a wild continent, it, it wasn't just there. It's really, it's back in Belgium as well. And, and I think, I think um, uh, that's really in, in many ways a good point is, you know, here we have this massive uh, civilization today where we're, we're just living and we're glutted with high technology and we have, you know, so many things to our advantage, but we have to, to realize it's still savage. And, and, and of course, now Conrad, you know, died, you know, quite a while ago. But uh, I think some of us that uh, you know, read these books and read the read this, we have to to kind of get a message out there too that that in some ways, I mean, we're still living in a savage world, and uh, we still have these. All of us have these hearts of darkness, and so so uh, you know, there's there's uh, there's much that we can say that this book is really still current, and then of course, uh, you know, the, the seafaring part of it or you know the fact that it was um you know they were on ships and all that that that's just a side point it's it's the deep stuff that we really need to get from this book and that the deep stuff is about you know every human being has a heart of darkness and every society is flawed and i think that's what that definitely is what conrad is really trying to get across to us here Notice, he goes on, I'll just go on to say, read this. He says, They trespassed upon my thoughts. They were intruders whose knowledge of life to me was an irritating pretense because I felt so sure they could not possibly know the things I knew. And so, so essentially what Marlowe uh, you know, is, is saying here is, look, when he, when he went to Africa, when he you know, went into the heart of darkness, he learned a lot of things, and these people didn't know what he knew. But what I think is is um, really interesting is he he didn't really seem to have any desire to help them see it either. And he even goes on to say that he said I had no particular desire to enlighten them, but I had some difficulty in restraining myself from laughing in their faces, so full of stupid importance. And uh, you know he he just. In some ways, it's amazing to me that that when I learn something, and uh, even what I learn about myself, sometimes I want to share that right away and to help someone else. But, but it didn't seem like Marlowe had any any desire to do that. Now, here's here's also a little bit that I skipped. I, I want to read. He says their bearing, which was simply the bearing of commonplace individuals going about their business in the assurance of perfect safety was offensive to me like the outrageous flauntings of folly in the face of a danger it is unable to comprehend and so so essentially what what uh, you know Marlowe recognizes about the people in the sepulchral city is that they're they're involved in a danger that they don't even understand it's like they're in a war they don't even know they're in a war and uh, you know, you know, uh, even I think that the Bible at times can be very, very clear on that. That you know, the true Christian life is the life of a soldier, and every true Christian is in a war. And you're in a war against yourself. You're in a war against the evil, uh, evils of this world, and you're also in a war against well, Satan, the devil. Now that isn't very popular. There's a lot of people who don't believe in Satan, the devil. But if you look at what's happening to America today. You can't deny the fact that there is a devil that's caught the minds and captured 
uh, you know, these people, and, and they're doing his bidding. And so, so you know, here's the thing that Marlowe had learned. There was something more uh, to this life than ivory, and he's even talking about their beer and their food and their, their culture. He said there's something more to life. And, of course, uh, um, you know, we, we saw that actually through the death of Kurtz as well. When essentially, you know, it's, it's right before he died, he was able. It's like he had his eyes wide open; he could see, and he could see all the way into the universe. And so, so uh, you know, these people he saw in Belgium, you know, they weren't looking up. <laughs> you know, they were looking around and looking down, just enjoying, enjoying their life. Now he goes on to say, he said, "I dare say I was not very well at that time." I tottered about the streets. There were various affairs to settle. Grinning bitter, bitterly at perfectly respectable persons, I admit my behavior was inexcusable. But then my temperature was seldom normal in these days. So he, he's saying he was walking around, you know, with a fever all the time. And, and you know, if if you uh, you know think about it, uh, I know uh, I, I had to uh, to uh, see a chiropractor this morning, and every time I go in. They have to take my temperature, <laughs> you know. And it's just, it's the COVID nineteen restrictions. I don't want to just they want to have that little gun, the temperature gun. And you, you know, if you go into these areas, they always want to take your temperature. Well, I guess uh, um, you know, Marlo knew his own temperature wasn't very good at that time, and it can make you crazy. But but essentially, what he comes back to here is is he was actually being taken care of by his aunt. So, so here he is back in the sepulchral city. He's walking around. He's half dazed because he's got a fever. You know, he's looking around and he sees that you know the sepulchral city is just as dangerous as the heart of darkness or the the wildness of Africa was. And uh, you know, he, he's trying to get a grip on on his life, and he doesn't he doesn't know what to do. But again, he he doesn't want to. Uh, let's, let's say he's, he's not necessarily in the mood um, to, to help anybody either. And uh, in, in some ways, um, I think if we really go back to my opinion that, you know, uh, Marlowe is speaking for Conrad, I, I just think, you know, Conrad didn't know uh, how to figure it all out either. And so he wasn't interested in necessarily uh, telling everybody except for the thing that everyone has a heart of darkness, but how to resolve it, Marlowe doesn't know. And, but neither did Conrad. And so you can see that reflected you know, in, in what he was saying. Um, he, he goes on to say, uh, let me just read this, as my dear aunt's endeavors to nurse up my strength seemed altogether beside the mark. It was not my strength that wanted nursing. It was my imagination that wanted soothing. Now, I think that's an unusual line, but the, 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 the point is, I, I, I think what, what you have here is that, that Marlowe is really kind of jealous of Kurtz because Kurtz had an incredible imagination. And uh, even as you go through you know, some of the rest of this chapter, you're going to see you know, that, that uh, there's these people who come in um, you know, there was someone from the company came in, a clean-shaven guy. Then there was, a, you know, one of his journalist friends came in, and they were all talking about Kurtz. His, Kurtz's cousin came in to talk to him, and they were talking about how great he was. But, but notice he said that 
that his imagination needed soothing. And so, so you know, it, it, to me, I, I think that's true of probably most people in this world. You know, um, you know, Kurtz had this imagination right before he died. He, he got the universe view, but also he realized the horror of human nature. But, but I think there's many people in this world, they live their life the same way. They, they need to better use their imagination, well, to discover the higher purpose of human life. And uh, human life does have a greater purpose than sports or money or ivory or beer or good food or a beautiful surroundings. I mean, there's, there's a lot more to life than that. And, uh, you know, as I said on our last program, and, and uh, just to be honest, what was missing in Marlowe's or Conrad's life was there was no direction from God. And really, if, if, you, uh, if, if you really want to grow up and really want to develop an imagination, it's only through a relationship with God that we can even have our, our, our imagination set on fire. And, uh, you know, there is, there is a purpose to human life. And, of course, if you, you know, look what's taught in the schools and the colleges, you know, evolution is, is the number one proof of a creation. And that's stupid. I mean, it's just, it's just not even a logical um, way to describe the, the earth and the universe. You know, there's laws out there, and, and did evolution just create laws? I mean, there had to be a great mind to create those. And, uh, you know, the way the, even the earth spins and, and how the, you know, the atmosphere we have spins right along with it. And even science knows that, you know, the scientists or the astronauts that go out into the space to come back into the Earth, they have to be going at the same speed the Earth is going so they don't burn up. So, so uh, you know, we do need to have our imagination set on fire. Now, I think that it's interesting. I want to come back to Shakespeare a little bit. But I think even, even uh, you know, Shakespeare saw some of this. I'm going to, uh, last time we covered the soliloquy, the famous soliloquy by Hamlet of to be or not to be. But <clears throat> today I just want to go to, uh, again, this is uh, Act 1, Scene 5 of Hamlet. And this is the, the ghost scene where, where Hamlet and his best friend Horatio finally encounter the ghost, and they, they know the ghost is real. And uh, remember that Horatio is a philosopher. I mean, he's, he studies philosophy all the time, and you know, that's his whole life. But, but uh, essentially... Hamlet, with, uh, with seeing this ghost, it really did shake him up spiritually. And uh, you can tell that Hamlet is a little deeper thinking. And uh, Hamlet says here, he says, Well said, old mole, canst work in the earth so fast, a worthy pioneer, once more removed, good friends. And so essentially he's talking to the ghost who appears as his father. But notice Horatio says, Oh, day and night, but this is wondrous strange. And so, so, you know, finally Horatio is admitting this is something really strange and notices Hamlet's answer to that. It says, and therefore, as a stranger, give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And so, so that's the thing that people have to learn to see is that there are more things out there in the universe than are in our philosophy or in our way of life or you know, our drive for sports or money or ivory or beer, there's something else going on in the universe that really we should know about. And so, so uh, you know, I just think that that is really 
uh, interesting that Marlowe says his remedy is he needs his imagination soothed. And I'll tell you what, that's, that's the remedy that we all need. Now, one thing is, uh, as we go through this, I'm going to skip ahead just a little bit. Um, the, the one thing that I, I want to say here and spend some time with this is, um, you know, Marlowe's coming back. Um, he, uh, you know, he, uh, may, maybe I should just read this, this a little bit more. It says, I kept a bundle of papers. Uh, so after he says his imagination needed soothing, he says, I kept these bundle of papers given me by Kurtz, not knowing exactly what to do with it. His mother had died lately, watched over as I was told by his intended. So this is where, uh, at this imagination scene, or this imagination comment is where Conrad then reintroduces us to the intended. And so, so he has this slim pack of letters. And of course, uh, that's when the, uh, the executive or the, one of the managers of the company comes in and they want, they want to see Kurtz's papers but what they're hoping for is a geographic explanation of Africa so they can go back and take more ivory. And that's what they want. It's not there. It doesn't have it. And essentially, uh, you know, uh, Marlowe shows them his philosophy of how to get civilization there, and the guy says, oh, we don't want that. Then uh, the cousin comes in, and yeah, the cousin talks about, uh, you know, Kurtz's talents, and he said he was, he was a great musician. And then, of course, then Marlowe says, well, I understand he was a great, you know, artist. And then, uh, you know, in, in other words, he goes on to say then he was this universal genius. And so, so in, in some ways, even though Kurtz is dead, in, in Marlowe's mind, he's still very much alive. And, uh, you know, but then, again, they're, they're mentioning the... the um, the intended here, and I want to move on to that so we don't run out of time. But but the, the point I want to make here is that that when we 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 have Marlowe here, he's he's back in the sepulchral city. He's he's going to go see the intended because he's got these letters for her, and uh, everybody's still talking about Kurtz, the mystery of Kurtz, the kind of like the specialness of Kurtz. And essentially, now once we get in there, what what I I think we need to really see is that that Marlowe and the Intended are both still trapped in Kurt's darkness. And, uh, you know, as, as we go through this, we're going to see, I think, that, that Kurtz is, is really worshipped by Marlowe. And obviously the Intended worships him as well. And essentially that keeps them, them uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, stuck in, in that darkness. Now again, um, Kurtz did um, did give the you know his uh, pamphlet on on uh, how to improve civilization. He gave it to his his uh, journalist friend, and of course he was excited to see it. And then this is what what uh, Marlowe says. He says, "Thus I was left at last with a slim packet of letters and the girl's portrait." She struck me as beautiful. I mean, she had a beautiful expression. I know that the sunlight can be made to lie, too. Yet one felt that no manipulation of light and pose could have conveyed the delicate shade of truthfulness upon those features. She seemed ready to listen without a mental reservation, without suspicion, without a thought for herself. I concluded I would go and give her back her portrait and those letters myself. Curiosity? Yes. 
and also some other feeling perhaps. Now listen to this. This is where I believe he's, he's showing us that he worships Kurtz. All that had been Kurtz's had passed out of my hands, his soul, his body, his station, his plans, his ivory, his career. There remained only his memory and his intended, and I wanted, and I wanted to give that up too, to the past in a way, to surrender personally all that I remained of him with me to that oblivion which is the last word of our common fate. And so, so you can see that, that uh, there is kind of a godless thought here, and it's probably Conrad's thought, is that, well, after life there's just oblivion. But, but essentially that's not true. I mean, uh, for, for you know, the people that are really bent on evil, maybe their fate after death is oblivion. But uh, those people who, you know, seek out God, who do what God, uh, you know, expects of human beings, I mean, there's actually eternal glory out there. And it has everything to do with the universe. And so, so uh, um, you know, I, I think uh, this is where we all need our, our uh, imagination soothed. He goes on to say, I thought his memory was like the other memories of the dead that accumulate in every man's life, a vague impress on the brain of shadows that had fallen on it in their swift and final passage. But before the high and ponderous door between the tall houses of a street as still and decorous as a well-kept alley in a cemetery, I had a vision of him on the stretcher, opening his mouth voraciously as if to devour all the earth with all its mankind. He lived then before me. He lived as much as he had ever lived, a shadow of insatiable, of splendid appearances, of frightful realities, a shadow darker than the shadow of the night and draped nobly in the folds of a gorgeous eloquence. The vision seemed to enter the house with me, the stretcher, the phantom bearers, the wild crowd of obedient worshipers, the gloom of the forest, the glitter of of uh, reach between the murky bends, the beat of the drum, the regular and muffled like the beating of a heart, the heart of a conquering darkness. It was a moment of triumph for the wilderness, an invading vengeful rush which it seemed to me I would have to keep back alone for the salvation of another soul. And so, so this is when he's on his way to see uh, the intended, to take those letters back to her. And, uh, and, and notice he still has this absolutely, um, let's say, imagination about Kurtz, where he thinks he was a really good guy. And actually, you know, he, he was full of darkness. And, uh, you know, so, so anyway, uh, he, he goes on in this next couple of sentences or next couple of paragraphs, he talks about a final conversation that he had with Kurtz. And essentially, all all Kurtz was talking about right before he died was ivory, and and he said he got the ivory that he had on his own. It wasn't the company's, and what he wanted was justice. And so so uh, there's more revealed here in this section, um, you know that, and I, I'm just going to let you read that on your own. Now, <clears throat> as I go down the page, um, he's he's now at the intendant's house. And notice what he said. It says, The dusk was falling. I had to wait in a lofty drawing room with three long windows from floor to ceiling that were like three luminous and bedraped columns. 
The bent bent gilt legs and backs of the furniture were shown in distinct indistinct curves. The tall marble fireplace had a cold and monumental whiteness. A grand piano stood massively in a corner and in dark gleams on the flat surfaces like a somber and polished sarcophagus. A high door opened, closed, I rose. And so, so in some ways, that shows like the high society of, of Belgium. And this is where, where she lived. But notice what he goes on to say. It says, she came forward all in black with a pale head floating towards me in the dusk. She was in mourning. It was more than a year since his death, more than a year since the news came. She seemed as though she would remember and mourn forever. She took both my hands in hers and murmured, I had heard you were coming. I noticed she was not very young. I mean, not girlish. She had a mature capacity for fidelity, for belief, for suffering. But listen to this next sentence. The room seemed to have grown darker as if all the sad light of the cloudy evening had taken refuge on her forehead. This fair hair, this pale visage, this pure brow seemed surrounded by an ashly, an ashy halo from which the dark eyes looked out at me. Their glance was guileless, profound, confident, and trustful. She carried her sorrowful head as though she were proud of that sorrow, as though she would say, I, I alone, know how to mourn for him as he deserves. And so, so notice that, that here the intended, even though she lives in this beautiful environment, even though she may have a, a nice personality, she's still surrounded in darkness. And, and I think that's exactly what Conrad wants us all to see is that, you know, we, we all have to, to look inside and face it. He goes on to say, but while we were still shaking hands and such a look of awful desolation came upon her face that I perceived she was one of those creatures that are not the playthings of time. For her, he had died only yesterday, and the impression was so powerful that for me too, he seemed to have died only yesterday. Nay, this very minute, I saw her and him in the same instant of time, his death and her sorrow. I saw her sorrow in the very moment of his death. Do you understand? I saw them together. I heard them together. She had said with a deep catch of the breath, I have survived. And so, um, you know, but my question is, did she really? (laughs) I mean, she's still, you know, totally tied to Kurtz. And honestly, she she really doesn't know him. And uh, uh, essentially, the intended looks at Marlowe and says, you knew him well, she murmured, after a moment of mourning silence. And then, uh, if you if you remember earlier on in the book, Marlowe says he hated lying. Well, he immediately starts getting involved in some of the biggest lies you know he would tell. He goes on to say, "Intimacy grows quickly out there." I said, "I knew him as well as it is possible for one to know another." And you admired him, she said. It was impossible to know and not admire him, was it? And he goes on to say, "He was a remarkable man." I said unsteadily. So now he's not so sure. He said, Then before the appealing fixity of her gauge that seemed to watch for more words on my lips, I went on, It was impossible not to. And then it just ends there. But then she says, Love him. And, uh, you know, she's still in love with the guy. And yet we know he had a mistress. We know he had people worshiping him. He was like a little god out there. 
she went to say, you knew him best, I repeated. This is her, him talking to her. And perhaps she did, but with every word spoken, the room was growing darker. And only her forehead, smooth and white, remained illuminated by the unextinguishable light of belief and love. And so, you know, she, she goes on and they have this, this long conversation about, really, it's, it's about Marlowe. And then uh, she, she would talk, you know, very favorably about him. And he would say, I listened. The darkness deepened. And, uh, you know, so, so, so in, in many ways, um, you know, she's in darkness, he's in darkness. The more they talk about him, the things get darker. And, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's really deep, deep reading to really understand what, what Conrad is doing here. I'm going to skip over now a few pages. And she, she keeps saying, talking to him. Um, uh, she says, well, his words will remain, I said. And it says, and his example, she whispered to himself. Men looked up to him. His goodness shone in every act. His example, and so can you imagine? Here's Marlowe sitting there listening to all this, knowing that to catch him, he had to, you know, he had to catch him from this massive ceremony of, you know, uh, the natives dancing and jumping and and uh, you know wanting him, uh, wanting him back. They wanted to worship him, and so, so uh, you know, I can see that Marlowe just doesn't know what to do with himself. I'd be sitting there not knowing what to do do with with all that. And, and she says, um, she really starts talking about his words. And even the cousin said that he, you know, he was so, so good he should have been in politics. But uh, she, she goes on, she says, um, uh, repeat this. She says, to the very end, I said, Shakely, I heard his very last words. I stopped in a fright. Yeah. Because <laughs> his very last words were, I want my ivory. He says, repeat them, she murmured in a heartbroken tone. I want, I want something, something to live with. I was the point of crying at her. Don't you hear them? The dusk was repeating them in a, in a persistent whisper all around us, in a whisper that seemed to swell menacingly like the first whisper of a rising wind. The horror, the horror. So this is what he's thinking. And, and uh, she, she says, oh, I, I, wanna, I want you to tell me, his last, tell me his last words. And he says, the last word he pronounced was your name. <laughs> And we, we know that is not true. That was a big lie. And so, again, it's, it's like they're both stuck in the darkness together. Now I want to just read the final paragraph because we're running out of time. It says, Marlowe ceased, sat apart, indistinct and silent in the pose of a meditating Buddha. Nobody moved for a time. We have lost the first of the ebb, said the director suddenly. And so now he's back on the Nelly. I raised my head. The offering was bared by a black blank of clouds. And the tranquil waterway leading to the uttermost end of the earth flowed somber under an overcast sky, seemed to lead into the heart of an immense darkness. And so, so there's Conrad telling us, look, we all have to face the darkness. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, I will introduce um, Conrad, Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim, where we will meet Conrad, but in a very different way. Now, this means that in just a short time, we'll begin our discussion of Lord Jim, so you need to buy a copy of that book now and start reading. I recommend you buy the Signet Classics Edition. Now, you can buy Lord Jim at Amazon.com. You may 
be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com, and you may be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.